April 3rd, 1998. Some of you will remember this news story that came out. There was almost 100 people who lost their lives because of a coffee spill. Some of you recall the story on an air traffic controller supervisor spilled his coffee in the control tower of the New York City's LaGuardia Airport. Another controller then turned to help him out and said, well, let me help you clean that up. And the supervisor, supervisor said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of the spill. But by the time the controller got his bearings back on the planes, there were two jets that came within 20 feet of colliding into each other because he took his eyes off the control and one was just 200 feet above a runway intersection. The coffee spill caused the controller to miss a needed call for one jet to abort its landing because he was distracted by just a simple thing like dropping a cup of coffee. Consequently, a U.S. airway plane missed past beneath the tail of the Air Canada jet at 130 miles an hour. It was almost a tragic accident as two planes could have very easily collided. You know, the good thing was, is nobody was hurt, nobody was injured, but the potential for disaster was enormous, greatly enormous. Cleaning up spilled coffee, now that's important, but not when you're air traffic controller. Not when you're dealing with people's lives at stake. Not when you've got to make sure they take off and land with no problems or no difficulties. A lot of people are depending on air traffic controller safety. They've got to keep their priorities straight. So easy to get distracted by a simple thing like a cup of coffee and lose priority. That Listen, I have planes coming, I have planes going, and a priority to make sure they land safely. I want you to know, church, we need to recognize... That others are depending on us, the church. This world's dependent upon the church to do what the church is supposed to do and for the church to live the way the church is supposed to live. Now, we're not any air traffic controllers, but we're fathers and we're mothers and we're aunts and we're uncles and we're grandmas and grandpas and we're sisters and we're moms and dads and we're children's ministry workers and we're growth group leaders and we're teachers and we're elders and we're business leaders. We have influence in our society and this world needs us to keep our priorities straight. And we sometimes get distracted in that. One of the major obstacles to keep our party straight is the way we spend our time. Author Dr. Richard Swenson wrote a book called Margin. He reports these findings. He says, in a lifetime, the average American will spend six months sitting at traffic lights waiting for them to change. Spend one year searching through desk clutter looking for misplaced objects. For some of you, that's two or three years. Spend eight months opening junk mail. Spend two years trying to call people who aren't, aren't in or whose line is busy. Spend five years waiting in line. Spend three years in meetings. Learn how to operate 20,000 different things from pop machines to can openers to digital radio controls and cell phones. We're full of a lot of stuff that really eats in on the margin of life. Things that get in the way of the priority of life. He says, in addition... The average person will commute 45 minutes every day, be interrupted 73 times every day. He says the average manager is interrupted every eight minutes. We receive 600 advertising messages every day, TV, newspaper, magazine, radio, billboards, and the list goes on. It's probably increasing regularly in the social media world. Travel 7,700 miles every year. Watch 1,700 hours of television. Open 600 pieces of mail every year. No wonder... 
No wonder we can struggle with keeping priorities straight. There's all kinds of stuff in this world that is screaming and crying out for our attention and our time, but priorities are essential, and it's an imperative that we keep reminding ourselves what those priorities are. Priorities are always a struggle, though, always, especially in a church. I think we need this. I think I want this. We should do this. We should do that. Who determines the priorities and what they ought to be? Paul's addressing this with 1 Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy, this young pastor, and he's saying, Timothy, here's the manual. Timothy, here's the playbook. Who calls the plays? Coaches. Who calls the play in the church? God. God said, here's the playbook. Here's what I want you to do. Who's the one then to put the plays into action? We watched it last night. The coaches are calling the plays. Some are up in the booth and some are down in the field. They're calling the plays and the coaches are calling the plays and they're telling the players, now you go put it into action. We're the players on the field. God has his plan. He has his strategy. He has the way he wants the church to operate. And this book that we're looking at, this letter, as Paul is laying out the priorities of the church, and he's saying, here's what God wants us to follow. He's calling the plays. Are you following them? And so we've been looking at the priorities of the church. We looked at the priorities of a Savior. We looked at the priorities of a pastor. And this morning, I want us to look at the priorities of worship. We're going to cover this kind of this week and next week, really. kind of dives into two areas. Now, as we go through this, it's so important for us to remember the key, vo- key verse in the book of Timothy. The key verse in the book of Timothy, we haven't gotten to it yet, we will get to it, is chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. That's a key verse because he's telling Timothy, Timothy, I'm writing all this so you know how to do it because they were dealing with some stuff. They were dealing with distracted priorities. They were dealing with factions and arguments and people wanting power and and just all kinds of struggles going on in the church. And Paul's like, Timothy, I'm writing you this play manual. I'm putting this playbook together. And so today we dive into chapter 2, and he starts laying out to Timothy about worship. And we're going to see very quickly there must have been some struggles in the area of worship because they were losing their priority, their focus. Look at chapter 2, beginning verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Notice what Paul says the first priority of worship is. Verse 1, he says, first of all. First of all, what? First of all, prayer. First of all, my church is supposed to be a a place of prayer. Jesus even said that. My church shall be a place of prayer. In Acts chapter 6, there was a strife that arose. And in that, the apostles were committed to the priority of prayer when they said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry 
of the word. They appointed some people to take care of the challenge, and then they said, let us get back to praying, because they knew that was the priority of the church. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and after he tells them to put on the armor, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the helmet of salvation, and he goes through this whole armor guard, and he says, and now be sure to be people of what? Of prayer. He says, you've got to be people of prayer. And First Thessalonians, he tells the church in Thessalonica, he says to pray continually. And the word continually, one way to describe that is the frequency of a hacking cough. Like, a, like get something stuck in your throat. And you're coughing. He's like, don't quit. Keep hacking until you get it out of there. So keep on praying. And you see this theme in Paul's writings. You see this in Jesus. As Jesus spoke and Jesus taught, that prayer was of the highest priority. And so Paul lays out some guidelines for us today. I just want us to see. First, he gives us a prescription. Look again at verse 1. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petition, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. He breaks down prayer into four different ways of praying. He says, request. That's actually taking your needs. That's just bringing to God. God, here are my requests. Here are my concerns. God, I want to ask you for this. God, I'm looking for a new job. Can you help me with that? God, my friend is sick. Can you help me with that? God, I'm just wondering about this. I'm wondering about that. And you ask God of things that are on your heart and mind. And you take your request to him. And then he says prayers, which is interesting. He actually breaks prayers down to a whole other word. When you go to the original language there, what that meant was in a relationship with God. It was prayers and a reference of a relationship where you just kind of hang out and you talk with God. You hang out and you spend time with God. You're walking in the field. Hey, God, how you doing? God, here's what's going on in my life today. Or like this morning to get up and you walk outside. Who saw the, the moon was up and the, and the sun was coming at the same time this morning? You know, I was like, man, we come to second service. We weren't even on bed. How do we see that? I walked up my drive this morning and there's the moon and right over here was the sun starting to rise. That was really cool. Just look up and go, God, that's really neat. That's just relationship. Just talking to God about everyday things that you're dealing with. And then he says intercession. That's praying. That's interceding for other people. Or he's saying, you go on behalf of other people and you bring requests. God, I'm praying for my friend. Their marriage is struggling. God, I'm praying for sickness in this person's life. God, I'm praying for blessing over this person's life. Because sometimes people struggle in prayer and they need someone to come alongside them and just pray for them and intercede on their behalf where we go to God on behalf of somebody else. And then he says thanksgiving. It's interesting he brings thanksgiving in because thanksgiving is just the opposite of grumbling and complaining. It's the absence of anxiety and irritability. I know for myself, when I start grumbling and complaining, grumbling about a driver, grumbling about my waiter or waitress, grumbling about this or that, usually I haven't been stopping to be very thankful lately. But see, we fill our minds with thankfulness and we go, God, what am I thankful for? Thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for my cars that are getting me from point A to point B. Thank you for the paycheck I had come in this week. Thank you for the health in my family. When you take time to be thankful, it's amazing how things of grumbling and complaining can go away. See, when we pray, our attitude changes. And what Paul is pointing Timothy to, to lead the church to, is make sure that prayer is first. You've heard, it, you've heard me say it before, is the way you begin your day is the way you'll live your day. So you start your day in prayer. You start your week with prayer. You start your worship with prayer. You start everything with prayer, that that's the beginning. First of all, to pray. And then Paul goes on and says, now, as you pray, I want you to consider these people. Look at verse 2. For kings and all those in authority, 
that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Who are we to pray for? He says kings and all those authorities. Now, we don't have kings, but we have leaders. You have bosses and you have managers. You have school teachers maybe that are over you because you're a student. You have professors that are leading out. He would say, I want you praying for these people. Every person in a position of authority should be a recipient of our prayers. They should start receiving our prayers. That boss that is hard on you, that boss that is unfair, that boss that is not giving you the pay raise, that boss that is riding your back, instead of complaining or grumbling to stop and say, I need to pray for that person. That professor, that teacher that just seems like they're, they're giving you the negative grade all the time, the one who's correcting you in school, if you're in school, whatever it may be, I'm going to stop and pray for that person. But he says kings. I think that applies to our political society right now, what's going on. I think you would all agree with me that right now what's happened politically in our country is just a mess. Wouldn't you? And, and, I, and I've never done it, and I, and I won't do it, because I don't think the pulpit is the place to do, deal with political issues. I don't care if you're on the Democratic side, if you're on the Republican side. I don't care if you're somewhere in the middle. I've I got to tell you, the government's not going to fix our issues. It's going to be when we, God's church, get on our knees and we start praying for them. And we start praying dil- diligently for what's happening. So when, when's the last time you stop and think about it? When's the last time maybe you prayed for a, a principal at the school? When's the last time you prayed for the mayor of our city? When's the last time you prayed for your congressman or for your senate leaders? When's the last time you got on your knees for our president, whether you like him or you don't like him? Whether you agree with his policy or disagree with his policy? When's the last time you got on your knees and just said, God, I am praying over this country. I'm praying for those who are in positions of leadership. Jesus told us to pray for our leaders. Paul tells us to pray for our leaders. Church, it's not going to change when we pray. And what do you pray? You pray exactly what he says here in verse 3 and 4. He says, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? So secondly, we pray for leaders, but we pray for lost people. We pray for people who are lost. We pray for people who are without Jesus. We pray that all men and women would be saved. We're talking about here when he says God wants all men, it's talking about all mankind. It's not talking about male gender. Talking about all mankind to be saved. Start praying that. Pray that for your boss. God, I want my boss to be saved in Jesus Christ. God, I want the principal to be saved. I want the teacher to be saved. I want the policeman to be saved. I want the politicians to be saved. Because when they come to a saving faith in Jesus, that's when then they will lead differently. And so we pray for salvation of people. And then he goes on and talks about the purpose of prayer. Why do we do it? Well, first of all, it pleases God. Pleases God. Look at verse 3 there. He says, this is good and pleases God our Savior. You want to know if you're pleasing God? Just stop and ask yourself, when's the last time I talked with him? Just simply praying, talking with God, pleases him. Pleases him to make him happy. Now, let me just talk to those who are younger. Those are maybe teenage years, 20s, 30 years old. I've really started to realize this more as I've gotten into my 40s. And my mom is back here, and so she can be a witness. Mom, you can say amen when I say this, Okay. Your parents want to hear from you. And we get so busy 
in our lives, in our 20s, in our 30s, and maybe even our 40s. We're so busy that we don't pick up the phone. And when I hear from people who are maybe in their 60s or 70s or 80s and their kids are growing up, they're like, I just wish my son or daughter would call me. Not text me. I just want to hear their voice. I just want them to pick up the phone and say, hi, mom, hi, dad. And you know, they're excited and pleased if it's a five-minute conversation or a 30-minute conversation. And so some years ago, I've tried to make a commitment to myself to make sure I'm calling my mom at least once a week, at least. I think I'm hitting it most of the time. Not always. The other day, I was having a conversation with a gentleman. He said, you know, every time his son calls, he hangs up the phone. And he, as he's hanging up the phone, he says, son, thank you for calling. I love to hear your voice. You know, God's the same way. It pleases God when you just kind of so pick up the phone of prayer. God, how you doing today? God, I'm dealing with this right now. God, I'm so happy. God, I am so thankful. God, I am struggling. God, I have this going on. I need this from you. God, will you help me out? God, I'm stressed. God, I'm worried. God, I'm so joyful. Whatever it is, he wants to hear your voice. Scripture says it pleases him. You don't please God? Just start talking to him. Start praying. That's the purpose of prayer. Also, purpose of prayer, people get saved. You know, every time I've talked to them about their salvation, there's always a group of people behind praying for that. My mom's been praying for me for years. My brother's been praying for me for years. My friend's been praying for me for years. There's always a story of prayer. I believe that people don't come to salvation in Jesus Christ until prayer happens. And we have to have the belief, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that God really does want all men and women to be saved. And so it doesn't matter how long their, their bad list is, the sin list, so to speak, God can scrunch it all, crush it all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for people to get saved. And then he says... We can live peaceful and quiet lives. What's the purpose? Peaceful and quiet lives. Could your lack of prayer be responsible for much of the corruption of our world, possibly? How do we get peace and quietness in our lives? It's true prayer. You know, I have two red warning lights that go off in my life that I know my prayer's been lacking. One is I already mentioned to you is that when I am complaining and grumbling and I'm not thankful, the Holy Spirit starts to flash this red light in my head like, Brian, you and I have been talking the other one is um, when I get stressed. I start getting stressed, and I, when I get stressed and I get grumpy, and then I get short with my kids, I get short with my wife, I get short with people at church, and these two red warning lights sometimes go off at the same time, but when the warning light of grumbling and complaining or stress and worry are taking over, what's happening is I'm not having a peaceful, quiet-filled life. What's your warning lights? Are you aware of what they are? We all have them. There's some things that happen in our lives where we go, man, I'm lacking peace, I'm lacking joy, I'm lacking contentment, I'm overwhelmed. goes back to, am I praying? And so the purpose, it pleases God, people get saved, and then there's peacefulness and quietness. He gives us provision. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all mankind. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. He says, listen, Timothy, there's been provision. God provided for man's salvation through Jesus Christ. He says, Timothy, look at God provided the Redeemer. He brought us back to God because he gave us Jesus. And he says, the Redeemer then paid the ransom. 
I mean, he's, he, he points right back to Jesus Christ because I think there was the grumbling and the complaining and the struggle that was going on. He's like, look what Jesus did for us. Look what God did for us. He gives us salvation. He brought us back to God, and then he paid the price, his ransom, by giving his son to die on the cross for you. That's who you're praying to. That's who you're going to. He says he's the mediator. He's the one that's the go-between. He's the one that helps you in your prayer life. And then Paul says, now listen, I'm a preacher about prayer. Verse 7, he says, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. It's interesting to me that he has to emphasize that. Listen, I'm speaking real truth to you right now. Now you've got to listen to what I'm telling you. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. He says, I'm a herald. He says, I'm a spokesperson for the king of kings is what he's saying. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. I was sent forth to carry this message. I'm a teacher. I'm a learning teacher. And I'm carrying this message everywhere I go and to every person I can share it with. And I want to reach them all. In 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul says, that's our mission, Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, this is what I'm doing. Timothy, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And Timothy, now you carry this forward and tell the church, this is what you're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be heralding Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be lifting up that he's the ransom, that he's the mediator, that he is the one that takes care of our prayers. And he says, I'll do everything I can to help some come to Christ because the opportunity is for everyone. Truth is, not all will respond, right? There's some, you know, you've been praying for for years. There's some that pass from this world onto eternity, and you go, I'm not sure where their salvation is. I don't know if they ever surrendered to Jesus. We all have those kind of stories. But Paul says, this is what I'm doing in my life. I'm taking this serious. And he says, Timothy, this is what you're supposed to be doing, the people are supposed to be doing. And then he closes up with a posture of prayer. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, very key verse right here as we transition into the rest of the text next week on chapter 2. Because he says, therefore, I want men everywhere. The word men there in the original language is being used is referring to the male figure, the male species. He's saying, men, I want you to lift up holy hands without anger and disputing. Why would he mention anger and disputing? Because that's what was going on. The men were like, come on, let's go. They're in arguments over kinds of stuff that was going on in the church. For today, it'd be like, well, we're arguing about how we do this, or what color the walls are going to be painted, or what color the carpet is going to be. Getting in arguments that were all meaningless. They were off the priority of Jesus, and they're anger, angry, angry at each other, and they're fighting about things, and they're disputing one another. And he calls the men out and says, men, stop it. Men, start praying. Men, lead your home in prayer. He says, cleanse your hands, cleanse your heart. He says, lift up holy hands. And he says, you need to be people of prayer. And he's calling out the men. Now, I'm going to give a little warning. Next week, our text, he calls out the ladies. All right, but he's trying to tell us, men, you start leading in the church, and you start leading in your family, and you be people of prayer. You know, Worship service, when we gather together as a group, gets a whole lot better when we're people of prayer in our homes. When we're people of prayer with our families. See, the Jews would customarily pray 
standing with their hands up like this. This is how they would stand. They would stand with their hands up, extended with their palms to heaven, as if to say they were expecting answered prayer. And so he's referring to holy hands when he says, you make sure you have holy hands. But what he's pointing to is the heart, ultimately. And they stand like this as a posture of saying, Lord, lift me up. Lord, I love you. Lord, I want to grab onto you. Now, if you think about this posture right here, if we have a child come up to us, one of our children come up, and they're yay big, they're two, three, four years old, and they come up to you like this, and they lift their hands, what do we do? We tend to bend down, we'll pick them up, we'll hold them, we'll caress them, we'll whisper in their ear, we'll tell them they're beautiful, we'll give them a kiss, we'll tell them we'll love them. A child, even if a child's not your own, and they walk up to you like this, you don't kick them, get out of my face. Do you? You would never do that. And even, even a child is not your own. If a child comes up to you, you, you may grab their hand. Maybe, maybe I can't lift them. You'll grab their hand or recognize them. A, a touch of love. You'll pick them up and you'll love them. When you go like this, you're saying, God, cleanse me. God, make me holy. God, take care of me. God, just lift me up. And we're his children. And he wants to do that for you. He wants to purify you today. He wants to clean you today. He wants to do that every day in our lives. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, you wouldn't hear my prayers. You think about this. David says, If I held on to sin, cherished it means I'm not letting go. I'm enjoying my sin. I'm going to embrace it. And David says, If I cherish that kind of sin in my life, he says, God's not going to listen to my prayers. In other words, the pipeline between me and God is clogged. It won't go anywhere. Now we've been having some plumbing issues at home, and I've had a plumber doing some work at my house. The other day in the bathtub, he takes off the cap, and he starts digging down in there, and he kept digging, and there was hair and gunk. I said, I put Drano down there. He said, don't use Drano. That stuff's terrible. It doesn't help your drain. He got out this clump of nasty, gunky hair. I have a daughter with long hair, and I have a boy is he in here? He's not in here. He kind of has long hair. And so it just gets nasty and built up. And so what happens? The water backs up and they're taking a shower and they're standing in a puddle of water. That nastiness inside there. You know what? All of us have that nastiness in our lives. It's called sin. And David says when you cherish it and when you hold on to it and you say, I'm not going to do anything about it, and then it clogs your prayer life. It clogs up your pipeline between you and God. And he says, listen, you come with holy hands. You purify yourself in repentance, asking for forgiveness to take that clog out. And then look what he says in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, treat your wives with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I brought that verse in because Paul's talking to Timothy here and he addresses the men and says, Men, you lift up holy hands. Men, you be people of prayer. Guys, I got to tell you, if I can just talk man to man, if you're married in this room, if you're not married, you need to know this verse. If you're disrespecting your wives, you're not loving your wife the way Christ wants you to love your life, love your wife and lay down your life for her as Christ laid down his life for the church, if you're not doing that and you're disrespecting, then it's hindering your prayer life. And when you're praying, Lord, bless my business, Lord, bless my kids, Lord, bless my marriage, if you're not treating your wife with respect and with honor and dignity and love, then your prayers are being hindered. And believe it or not, maybe you make that change and say, you know what, I'm going to start loving my wife the way I'm supposed to. Start respecting her the way I'm supposed to. All of a sudden, your prayer life will open up like you've never seen before. Guys, 
it's our job to be spiritual leaders in the home. It's our job to be spiritual leaders in the church. And Paul says here in worship, this idea of prayer, guys, it's time to step up. It's time to step up, men, is what he's saying. Guys, it's time to live holy lives, and it's time to lead out in this. Have you ever, ever told your kids when they were little, you ever told your kids, go wash your hands, get ready for dinner, or go get ready for supper, or seen somebody do that, they've been out playing, hey, go wash your hands, and then they come back in the kitchen, you're like, hey, let me see those hands, and, they're like, and you're like, they are not clean. Probably all been through that before, one time or another. That's what God's telling us right here in this passage. He's saying, hey, church, but he's hitting the men first. Go clean those hands, which means clean your heart. It's repentance. It's confession. Because God does the same thing. He's like, listen, I want to make sure you have a clean heart before you even come talking to me about all this other stuff that's in your life. And so we come to him in a prayerful spirit. And so Paul is taking Timothy and saying, Timothy, get the church back on the priority of prayer. Don't allow all the other stuff, all the distractions to be involved. Make prayer a priority. And he wraps it up with saying, are you clean? Are you pure? And so I want to give you a chance to do that today. Will you bow your heads with me?